Welcome to Real Britain, the podcast of my show on GB News. I'm Darren Grimes and you can catch me live every Saturday and Sunday afternoon from 2 till 3. But don't worry, if you miss it, you can catch up with the best bits here every week. So here we go. Let's talk about the issues that matter to you in Great Britain. Now, speaking of those local elections, I think there you have it, folks, right? There was no great rejection of Boris Johnson at the ballot box. Red Wall voters didn't scramble for the lifeboats to seek safe haven with Sir Keir Starmer QC. Far from it. The architect of Labour's Brexit betrayal and inability to define a woman can't cut through in Red Wall seats. Who'd have thunk it, eh, folks? These were midterm blues. The Conservatives lost London councils already held by Labour MPs. The Red Wall held on, still viewing the Labour Party as the party of Starmer and Thornbury, the party of the Remainer Islington class. You'd think, folks, given how the Labour Party has trumpeted its so-called triumphs, that they'd won a majority as significant as that secured by Tony Blair in 1997. No such luck there for Mr Starmer, folks. Sakir's new-look Labour Party, purportedly turning the page on the era of Jeremy Corbyn and Diane Abbott and their other merry band of Britain's sceptic leftists, reminds us all a lot of the old brand, doesn't it? There's also the fact that Brits cannot stand a hypocrite, and Sakia looks like one in the extreme. For months, Sakia has waxed lyrical with an almost unrivaled self-righteousness about Boris Johnson and purported breaches of lockdown rules. He's finally been forced to admit what everyone knew, that when the whole country was locked down, he was hosting boozy parties in Downing Street. Is he now going to do the decent thing and resign? Honesty and decency matter, screeched Sir Keir. After months of denials, the Prime Minister is now under criminal investigations for breaking his lockdown laws. He needs to do the decent thing and resign. That was Sir Keir. And of course, he was cheered on by a political and media class that had wanted to be rid of Boris, the Brexit Prime Minister, the champion of the Red Wall. They wanted rid of him from day one. So they picked up the party gate stick and they attempted to beat him out of office with it. Well, Sir Keir Starmer looks somewhat hypocritical. Sir Keir Starmer, a member of the Queen's Council, a top barrister, a former director of public prosecutions, and, of course, the leader of Her Majesty's most loyal opposition. I'm still waiting, Sir Keir, on this honourable, enlightened man to call on himself to resign. Because he is now the subject of a police investigation, similar to that against Boris Johnson. Kia called on both Johnson and the Chancellor Rishi Sunak to resign when they were placed under investigation. He was removing the right to a fair examination of the facts. Now he finds himself under a similar test. Will he be handing in his resignation? Where's the consistency? That's what I want to know. The consistency of the press in hounding the opposition leader over this. The consistency of Starmer himself and the consistency 
of the police in probing this with the urgency that was applied against the Prime Minister on all three counts. The only consistency I can see, folks, is the consistency of voters in being utterly turned off by the rank hypocrisy of Labour's Islington set. In other news, folks, Sinn Féin is set to win most seats in the 2022 local elections in Northern Ireland. Voters have chosen an Irish Republican party to actually lead the UK region's power-sharing government for the first time. But will Stormont now be doomed to fail? I'm asking, is this the end of power-sharing? Joining me to discuss right now is Jamie Bryson, a unionist activist and the author of Brexit Betrayed Writings from the Referendum to the Betrayal Act. The former DUP MP, Emma Little Pengelly, and Alison Morrison, journalist from the Belfast Telegraph. Thank you all very much for your company. Emma, can I start with you, please? Jerry Kelly, a Sinn Féin MLA, he's just been shown in the news there in saying, look, folks, the DUP need to accept that this is democracy. He's not wrong there, is he, Emma? Well, we have a very particular um, type of system here in Northern Ireland, of course, mandatory coalition. That means that you can be first minister here with, you know, maybe 22, 23% of the vote. However, in this case, like Sinn Féin have uh, received 29% of the, the first preference vote. Um, they have had a very solid election. But I think the key thing to remember here is actually very few seats have, have really changed hands. Uh, we went into this election with the DUP and Sinn Féin on very similar numbers. The DUP had uh, lost one of theirs to an, uh, becoming independent. So in the last election, DUP had 28, uh, Sinn Féin had 27. Now, it looks likely that if Sinn Féin do gain any, they'll only gain maybe one. Um, and the DUP are likely to lose about three, um, possibly four seats. So it's a quite a small change, but it is a significant one in that it places uh, Sinn Féin for the first time in a position um, that they would be uh, first minister if indeed the uh, institutions are restored. Um, now, that said, I think it, it's really important for your viewers that um, actually the, the, the unionist and nationalist designations remain very similar, even not just from the last election, but from what they were even back in 1998. So, you know, both uh, the unionist and nationalist uh, sort of blocks, as it were, sitting in around 40 to 42 percent, with unionism still the largest designation. However, because of the system that we have, the small, the small sort of change of seats has caused the situation with Sinn Féin. And of course, that's largely due to the protocol. The DUP has lost votes to a harder line party on its right, the TUV. Um, and of course, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson had made clear very, very unhappy uh, around the protocol. DUP voters very unhappy around the protocol. So, you know, a quarter of a million people, the same amount of people who voted for Sinn Féin, very clearly saying to Boris Johnson, to the British government, this protocol needs to get sorted out. And until it gets sorted out, there won't be power sharing restored in Northern Ireland. Alison, is that the real story here then? The real story is the story of the DUP, right? This was a rejection of the DUP, not of unionism, which Emma says there has rightly has a majority, but it was the collapse of the party. That's perhaps the real story here. Well, look, Emma put a, a great spin on that, but in reality, the TUV, the hardline TUV, will go back into the assembly, should it sit, with one MLA. They did not add a single seat. 
and in the an STV election, every person who may have given their first preference vote to the TUV will have given the second preference vote to another unionist party, namely the DUP. So to try and say that they lost votes because of the protocol, first of all, is a nonsense because they haven't lost anything. The, DUP, the TUV have not made massive gains, as was expected. Um, and the fact is that the, the growth of the middle ground is the second biggest story of this election. And the Alliance Party, who don't designate as either unionists or nationalists, are in favour of minor reforms to the protocol, but not the scrapping of it. Sinn Féin are now by far the largest party. They are also in favour of reforming parts of the protocol to make it work more, work with more ease, but not with getting rid of it. So how then can the British government go back and make concessions, which would basically be at the behest of the DUP, which is now in terms of their opposition to the protocol, a minority in Northern Ireland, um, in opposition to, to against the, the mandate that has been given to Sinn Féin and the Alliance Party. And all this is to do is to save face of Geoffrey Donaldson to allow him to put his party back into the executive. The, the fact is that the protocol needs reforms. We know that there are parts of it that do not work properly, that's causing problems to businesses. But I think that what where the DUP probably went wrong in this, uh, this election was not recognising that the real issues affecting their voters, affecting the unionist people of Northern Ireland, were things like the cost of living crisis, were the shambles of our health service, and, and, and not those sort of constitutional questions. Because whether Sinn Féin are First Minister on Monday or not, and that will not happen given the fact that you know they have to designate, and, and the DUP have indicated that they won't dominate a deputy First Minister, you were no closer to having a border poll in Northern Ireland. The only person who can call a border poll is the Secretary of State. That has to be with the will of the majority of people. And that's not something that's going to happen in the next five years. So I think that they need to stop using scare tactics, which has terrified the unionist voters into thinking that their sovereignty is at risk, because it isn't. Um, and I think that they need to get on with trying to, to work the institutions to weigh this to the benefit. If you want to save the union and save the union in Northern Ireland, well then make Northern Ireland look like a, a profitable, lovely place to live, a place where people feel comfortable, um, okay. rather than constantly saying it's under attack and you know that your sovereignty is under attack and having people living in fear. I think that that's where unionism went wrong in this election. So you've heard what Alison's got to say there, Jamie. Would you accept that actually scrapping the protocol outright doesn't have democratic consent? Because actually Sinn Féin won fair and square here. Well, good, good afternoon, Darren. Um, Look, Alison's just so long there, I'm not sure which part of it to pick apart first. Uh, in the first instance, uh, so we'll start at the end of her contribution, where she said there was no constitutional threat. Uh, the Court of Appeal in Northern Ireland has said the Act of Union, which is the Union, has been subjugated. Now, how the subjugation of the Union is anything other than a constitutional threat is beyond me, so that's incorrect. The next incorrect point is that a quarter of a million people in Northern Ireland voted for what are now a Senate. Now, you have to remember, in this election, the DUP moved decisively to a more hardline position, to effectively a TUV position of being almost anti-agreement, seeking changes on the principle of consent to actually protect the substance of the union, and an outright rejection of the protocol, with one of their seven key tests being the full restoration of Article 6 of the Act of Union, which would make 
any dual market access impossible. It would mean Northern Ireland has to be entirely within the UK single market and out with the, the, any access or any privileged access to the EU single market. And a quarter of a million people in Northern Ireland uh, voted uh, for that. So uh, the DUP didn't lose votes because they were being too hard line, because they were going on too much about the protocol. They lost votes because for a long time they weren't being hard enough on the protocol, and that's why 65,000 people voted for the anti-agreement, most hardline part of unionism, the TUV. Now, it's an STV election. That didn't, as Alison, one of the only correct things she said was, that didn't, of course, translate into seats. But in terms of the mood of unionism, it's very, very clear. And the Ulster Unionist Party, who were... The party who who would have capitulated on the protocol, I mean, I think they're almost desperate to be Sinn Féin's deputy. Their vote absolutely collapsed. Their leader had to scrape in uh, on one of the the, the later counts. But the most important point in this, and and it's important for your your viewers to understand this, Darren, is that Alison talks there about democratic legitimacy uh, and that the anti-protocol is in a minority. And I find that extraordinary because... For 25 years, the unionist community, for at least a a significant amount of that time, had a democratic right to govern, a democratic majority, and that was denied to us because we were told that nationalism had to be in government as of right, that the minority of nationalism had to have an equal uh, place in government in Northern Ireland. We were told that the Belfast Agreement was about cross-community consent. It's in there, Strand 1, 5D. Key decisions must have cross-community consent. And all of a sudden now, when nationalism, when people like Alison think that they can put the foot on the neck of the unionist community, all of a sudden cross-community consent doesn't matter. I mean, let's, let's just disavow that now and start talking about majority. So equality and cross-community consent was all well and good when it suited nationalism, but the very moment that they think they've a majority, all of a sudden that all falls by the wayside. They don't want okay, equality, they I'm want supremacy. I'm going to let Alison come back to reply mm. to that in a second. But, Emma, I want to just really quickly ask you, do you accept that, actually, for the vast majority of voters in Northern Ireland, talking about these constitutional issues wasn't a key concern? They were, as Alison says, focused on issues about health care and the economy. Well, Darren, of course, we have three distinct um, blocks, really, of voters here. You have nationalists and republicans, of course. They don't care about the union, so they don't care as much about the protocol. They don't care about the impact on this around our United Kingdom. In in the centre, you've got um, sort of the alliance party. They're kind of neutral on the union. So, again, they don't really care if this protocol is really bad for the union of our United Kingdom. Um, But when you look to unionists, unionists have been very united on this. Um, Bear in mind, well, Darren, that nationalists, the nationalist block has actually dropped two seats. Uh, the middle ground um, has really sort of just consolidated all of the smaller parties into the alliance party, but it has been a very strong showing still, much better than what some people predicted uh, for unionist parties, and particularly for the DUP and the TUV. And both of those parties, importantly, say, vote for this in this election, send a clear message to Boris Johnson. Look, the key thing here is, if this border was in the middle of Ireland, it was middle uh, between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, Sinn Féin would not be sitting in the Northern Ireland Assembly. They just okay. wouldn't. So we'll hear a lot about people saying, get back in there, just ignore it, let's fiddle while Rome burns. Actually, no, unionists are saying, uh, this is real danger to, to our union, of our United Kingdom. There's a border down the RC. Boris yeah. Johnson, you have to sort it out. 
Alison, I want to let you come back to what Jamie was saying there. Is he right to suggest that perhaps now turning around and saying, well, look, you've got to get around the table, guys, and negotiate? Where was that negotiation and the spirit of that democratic consent when actually unionism was the biggest party? And that's the, the Good Friday Agreement and unionists signed up to the Good Friday Agreement. The Ulster Unionist Party was the largest party and they signed up to those principles. Um, and I think that what, what happened was people have started trying to use the issues of the protocol, which are very genuine and do exist, in order to go back and tear up that agreement because it's something that they didn't like at the start. You know, I think Jimmy would be quite happy if the whole, you know, people just burned the whole house down and started from scratch. He's against the Good Friday Agreement. He's using the protocol as a way to try and rip up the Good Friday Agreement. But the fact is that the Alliance Party are not, well, when they when Emma says that, you know, the Alliance Party don't have a, have a position on the union, the majority of those folks come from soft due unionists. If you look at the demographics and where those people have been elected, we've just had an Alliance Party MLA elected uh, instead of Mervyn Story, a DUP person. The, the fact is that they're soft due unionists. There are people who are quite happy with the status quo. They're quite happy to remain within the union as long as the union is a comfortable and profitable place to live. They're not hung up on those very far right social issues such as gay marriage and reproductive rights. They're not hung up and worrying every day about the safety of a, a future border pole, which they know is a long way off in the future. They basically just want to see this place prosper. And I think that that was the vote that the Alliance Party really tapped into. I do think that the DUP, rather than chasing those hardline folks, should maybe look at that section of unionism to see how they can attract those people back into the, the unionist family rather than send them to that sort of other's designation. Right. I mean, sadly, folks, I've got to end it there. I'm being told I've got to go to the news. Oh, I would love to have continued this conversation because I think Northern Ireland does not get talk, spoken about in our national conversation anywhere near enough. So I thank you all for your time today. That was Jamie Bryson, Emma Little-Pengelly and Alison Morris. Thank you for joining me today. Now, folks, Sinn Féin are set to win the more seats in this year's local elections in Northern Ireland. A unionist party has been the largest in government since Northern Ireland was formed in 1921. Now, a nationalist party is looking likely to be the largest instalment. And of course, that result will have significant repercussions for the future of Northern Ireland and the Northern Ireland protocol. So what's next for Northern Ireland? Well, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined now by Arlene Foster, former Northern Ireland First Minister and GB News presenter for her take on what has just taken place. Arlene, thank you very much for your company. Now, you know Nicola Sturgeon from your time in office, and she has said, actually, Press Association are reporting that she has said Sinn Féin's performance in Northern Ireland has shown that there are big questions around the future of the UK as a political entity. She's surely right, isn't she, with Sinn Féin winning the day in Northern Ireland? Well, hi, Darren. It's good to be with you. Um, I'm tempted to say, well, she would say that, wouldn't she? Um, <laughs> because, of course, she's not looking at the totality of the nationalist vote. Uh, and actually, Sinn Féin have only increased their vote by 1.1%, if you look at the figures. Um, uh, the SDLP, the second largest nationalist party, has lost nearly 3% of their vote. So they've, people have moved from the SDLP to Sinn Féin. So in actual fact, the nationalist vote, if you look at it overall, hasn't actually increased 
um, since 1998, actually, if you look at 1998, the nationalist vote was 39%. It's now 39.6%. But what has happened is that people are now voting for Sinn Féin in larger numbers. And they did have a very good election. I'm not taking that away from them at all. But I think people get carried away by looking at individual parties instead of looking actually at the totality of unionism and the totality of nationalism. And really, there hasn't been much change in respect of percentage-wise on that score, Darren, for many, many years. Yeah, I mean, Arlene, some have argued, we just had um, someone on from the Belfast Telegraph and, and our panel, likes of Emma Little-Pengelly and Jamie Bryson, all having a real vibrant discussion there about what this means for the future of Northern Ireland. But one thing that really struck me was this idea that actually this wasn't an election on the Northern Ireland Protocol. This was an election like most other elections, right? It was on the economy. It was on the state of the healthcare service, uh, the NHS in Northern Ireland. And those issues were what mattered to people. Do you think, Arlene, that the DUP and other parties are at real risk here of focusing relentlessly on constitutional issues and taking their eye off the ball on the issues that the electorate really care about? Is that what's going on here? Well, I think if you look at the unionist electorate, um, they are very concerned about the protocol. And I think that's a point that Emma Little-Pengelly made very forcibly. And actually, the Belfast Telegraph, the paper for which Alison Morris writes, did a poll of unionists um, a couple of months ago, and the protocol was right up there. So people are very concerned about the protocol, Darren, in unionism, because they believe that it weakens our link with the rest of the United Kingdom. It, of course, costs more to bring goods across from GB into Northern Ireland. Ireland, and we have less choice in respect of our goods as well. So the protocol needs to be sorted, Darren, because frankly, there won't be an assembly or an executive until the government take action on the protocol. And that's been made very clear by Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, uh, as he was going through the election. Uh, so it's really over to Westminster now, and it's over to Boris Johnson as to what he is going to do about the protocol if he wants to see devolution return and i believe in devolution i think people do like to have their own ministers local ministers taking decisions uh, if he wants to see devolution coming back to northern ireland then he's going to have to take action do you accept that the dup and other parties have moved to the right do you because you seem to be making the case there arlene that actually these constitutional issues really do matter to unionist communities that feel quite rightly, in my view, you know where I'm at personally, I think a regulatory border down the Irish Sea separating a constituent part of the United Kingdom off from the others is an outrage, frankly. But we have to be honest here, Boris Johnson looking at his position right now, Arlene, may well be saying, well, Sinn Féin have won this fair and square. But I take you back to my first point again then, Darren. If you actually look uh, at what's happening within nationalism and unionism, there hasn't been a huge increase for either. It's not as if uh, all of a sudden nationalism is 45% and they've grown by 5%. They haven't grown in terms of the blocks of nationalism, unionism and others. Others have grown, actually. The centre ground, uh, those people who vote for the Alliance Party have grown and mostly they're content with the status quo. So they're content intent to be in the United Kingdom and to remain within the United Kingdom on the whole. Uh, it, it will, however, lead to, and I think I made this point before the election, Sinn Féin will use this um, uh, election result to argue now for a border poll, 
It'll be a very divisive argument. Uh, they will say, oh, it's time to have the conversation about um, going into an all-Ireland state. No, it's not time to have that conversation. It's time to actually build within the United Kingdom, look at all the benefits that we have from our membership of the United Kingdom, which were all underscored by what happened during COVID in terms of vaccinations, in terms of support from Her Majesty's Treasury. Uh, and so the benefits of being in the United Kingdom is what we should be focusing on now. And that's certainly what I'm going to be focusing on, Darren, as I move forward, uh, because that's what we should be talking about instead of some pipe dream of a United Ireland going into an economy which is in the European Union and frankly lags well behind the United Kingdom's economy. So in terms of healthcare, in terms of welfare, in terms of education, standard of living, we're much better off within the United Kingdom. And that's what we should be discussing, not some sort of fantasy dream, uh, which frankly would be a complete nightmare. Yeah, Arlene, you mentioned there that you're a big believer in devolution in actually Northern Ireland, being able to have ministers that are based in Northern Ireland that actually put in place what the people want. On that very question, do you think the Belfast Agreement in particular, in relation to the consent of unionist communities, has actually been destroyed by the Northern Ireland Protocol, which was purportedly there, Arlene, to protect the Belfast Agreement. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole point we were told of the Northern Ireland Protocol was twofold. One, it was to protect the single market of the European Union. So actually, the United Kingdom was doing the work of the European Union. That was the first point. And the second point was that the protocol was there uh, to make sure that all of the institutions of the Belfast Agreement uh, and all of the underlying points of the Belfast Agreement uh, were supported and were kept safe. Actually, it's doing the opposite. And I've made that point on many, many occasions. It's undermined the Belfast Agreement. It has led to protests on our streets about the protocol. People are very upset about what's going on. There's societal damage happening. There's economic damage happening. And therefore, it is incumbent upon our Prime Minister Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, the whole of the United Kingdom, to act and to do something about it. And I very much hope, Darren, that he does it very quickly. Well, Arlene Foster, former Northern Ireland First Minister and, of course, fantastic GB News presenter, who will be on air tomorrow morning, thank you very much for your time. Now, here's that slightly worrying headline from this week. The UK ranked fourth for having the most overweight and obese adults in Europe. Only Israel, Malta and Turkey were above us in this report by the World Health Organization. I want to know, does Great Britain need to go on a great diet? I'm joined by Tam Fry, the chair of the National Obesity Forum, and Kat Henry, who was the first plus-size woman to win the title of Miss Great Britain, and the nutritionist Kim Pearson. Tam, I'll start with you. Thank you very much for your company. These are pretty concerning figures, aren't they? What is this a sign of? Do we all need to get up and go a little bit more? 
Well, certainly we do. We, as a nation, we uh, are, are woeful in our uh, exercise and activity. But in my view, it is much more to do with diet than it is to do with exercise. We're eating currently about 20% more than we need to in order to uh, be healthy. And really what has to happen is we have to go on a diet, if you will, but not, not a diet so much as eat sensibly and less of it. And in the course of time, then obesity will disappear. But it's going to take another 10, 20 years, I'm afraid, for that to happen. Right. Kat, coming to you there, do you actually think that as a nation, we've got far too positive an attitude or perhaps far too relaxed an attitude about being overweight? No, I don't think we have a relaxed attitude towards uh, being overweight. I do believe that the mindset of pushing people into exercise is perhaps not the best way to like educate them. I think that exercise has to be more of a a hobby. It has to be something that people enjoy. I'm a plus size fitness instructor. I, I teach seven days a week and I pride myself on an ethos that allows people to move joyfully and actually really enjoy exercise again. And I think that actually promotes a better mindset towards mental health and physical health. Um, I'm not naive. I appreciate that being plus size and um, being overweight is not ideal in terms of a health perspective, but that's no reason for us to have diet culture shoved down our throats when 24-7 in a guilt trip method to try and make us lose weight. We as, as a people, we're not stupid. We know we need to control what we eat, but we've also just gone through a global pandemic where everybody was at home and all we did was eat. So actually, yeah, I think we may need to perhaps change tack in the way that we uh, actually deal with this and stop pushing diet culture down people's throat. Thank you, Kat. Kim, surely as a nation, right, Kat mentioned there that we've, we closed our gyms, quite rightly. But now we're not getting back into them, are we, in overwhelming numbers? Is it not right that when you consider overweightness and obesity in this country, we're actually at epidemic proportions in Europe? Well, we know that two-thirds of the UK population are overweight or obese. And I absolutely echo Kat's philosophy in that we need to really support, encourage and motivate people to make healthier choices. It is not about blaming or shaming people. It's about supporting individuals with exercising regularly, making healthy food choices, understanding what a healthy nutrient-dense diet looks like. But a lot of the focus has been on personal responsibility and laying the blame on individuals. And while I do agree that we need to take a degree of personal responsibility, we also need to tackle the food environment in which we all live, because we know that the ultra processed foods that we are exposed to everywhere on a daily basis is really what is working against us when we're trying to make healthier choices. Kat, coming back to you just for a second there. How do we actually give people the confidence? Because I don't know about you, but this is what I find is the problem. How do we give the nation the confidence to actually 
go to a gym and not feel like an outlier and not feel embarrassed or ashamed and actually to, to go there and think, right, I'm, gonna, I'm doing this for me. I don't care if other people, you know, might be judging me for being overweight or all of these other things. How do we actually change the mindset of people to feel more confident in their own skin so that they actually do make healthier choices? I think that, for me at least, is where we're going wrong. I think um, it is it is down to education and it's down to allowing instructors from all different shapes, sizes, ages and abilities to come forward and uh, teach people, show them that exercise can be enjoyable and fun at all ages and abilities and sizes. Um, you know, you don't see in uh, like the mainstream media a lot of people of all different shapes and sizes teaching fitness whereas we do exist and it might actually allow people to feel like they're represented in that space whereas mm -hmm. the fitness and, and uh, industry only promotes people that look strong fit and healthy yeah. and that's not a true reflection of the people that are actually teaching these classes always it's it needs to be about representation too Tam, would you shy away from the representation of actually what the British public look like at the moment? We are putting on weight. We are doing less exercise. We are, as you said at the start there, eating uh, a diet with far too many calories. Do you actually, would you like to see more representation of how the nation actually looks in fitness adverts and all these other things? Or do you actually think we should go in the opposite direction? I think there's a limit to what you really should expect of people. Um, I think the really important thing from the government's point of view is to actually help the people uh, by reforming the food culture which we have. Um, we have uh, food which is far too fatty, sugary, and salty. And those are the three ingredients which really cause the damage. And we really do need to clean that up. And uh, I particularly grieve for the fact that all that was supposed to be happening this year. Uh, in April, we were supposed to have uh, some restrictions on advertising of the food that you see on your screen. In October, we're due to have some uh, reform and revolution on the uh, ingredients. Uh, the problem, however, is that the government is putting it off. Uh, for 25 years now, we've had a gov successive governments who have been not at all serious about obesity. And we need to restore some sense of urgency into our parliamentarians to vote through right. the procedures which will allow the people then to benefit from uh, what they are eating. Okay. Uh, we need to have more exercise, of course. I wonder to what extent you're looking at the world through rose-tinted glasses here, because I'm not sure that the government saying, right, Tam, we agree with you, we're going to ban these adverts, Right, Tam, I agree with you. Other measures include banning buy one, get one free offers from, of foods that are high in sugar, in salt and in fat. All of those measures, they might do all of them. But do you really believe that all of a sudden the British people are going to say, well, you're right, actually, those foods are unhealthy. As Kat said earlier, we know that. We're not a stupid nation, right? So these, uh, these measures aren't going to work. 
Okay, let's look at it another way. I don't have uh, rose-tinted glasses, or I've never been accused of having them. Uh, let me say that, that the government should be supporting healthy food. Uh, we never see any advertisements for healthy food. People do not know where the healthy food is. People are not taught about healthy food at school. We have a succession of families in this country who can't cook. Therefore, they have to rely on ready-made food. Uh, all those things have to be addressed. Uh, and the point that I think that I'm making in total is that in 2019, the chief medical officer actually spelt out for the government at Boris Johnson's request, all the measures that need to be taken if we're going to have some impact on obesity. And I'm afraid to say that of the 49 measures that she recommended, uh, jo Johnson has paid virtually no attention to any of them. We have to have a sea change in government thinking about how they help people lead and eat a better life. Kim, in your opinion, is that where we're going wrong? Actually, time is right to say that people and many people in this country can't cook, right? Many people don't know how to actually make themselves meals with the right number of calories and all of these other things. And actually, you can do that quite cheaply too. Do all of these things start in the classroom? I think education from a younger age is very important. And one of the problems that we have is that so many of our ideas as to what we should be eating come from food manufacturers and from advertising and marketing and the promotion of snack foods, high sugar cereals. This is what we have become accustomed to eating on a daily basis. And so we really do need to work very hard to tackle this and to really truly educate people as to what a healthy balanced diet looks like. The Eat Well guidelines are very outdated. They really need reviewing and to, we need to take a real look at the advice that we are giving people as individuals. But I absolutely echo Tam's comments and agree that much more needs to be done from a government's perspective. They are aware of what needs to be done and they are stalling on this. And until they start to take real action to clamp down on the advertising and marketing of ultra-processed foods, then people right. on an individual level are fighting a losing battle. Kat, where are you at on this? Because in my opinion, banning adverts and, and these other measures aren't going to stop us all from eating foods that are considered unhealthy, right? The government can take all the action in the world, but ultimately, isn't the onus on us, right? We know, as you said earlier, we know what is good and bad for us. We're not stupid. Yes, we're not stupid, but it's not cheap. And if you look at the uh, the economic situation and the fact that everybody is struggling financially, processed food is cheapest. And therefore, if you're trying to feed a family, they're going to go for what they can actually afford. And that is processed food. And therefore, the, the more healthy options are far more expensive, uh, which makes it very difficult for a struggling family to actually feed their large family healthily. So actually, it's a bit hand in hand. The government should have a responsibility, but we can, as people, can only do what is within our remit. And unfortunately, the financial and economic situation is not helping in any way, shape or form right now I to allow us to do that. Thank you very much, Kat. I just want to put a, a question to each of you before we end this discussion. 
the question around plus-size models in advertising, speaking of advertising, we're seeing the use of plus-size models a lot more to promote body confidence. Tam, do you think that's going at things the wrong way? Actually, do you think that element of shame around being plus-sized is the right one to act as a deterrent for people eating these unhealthier foods? My, my, my problem is actually with the people themselves who are oversized and revel in it. And that is tragic because obesity is not a benign disease. Obesity spawns diabetes, a heart disease, cancer. And the plus size people who say, hey, we're wonderful, we're really happy being fat, they have to take note that very shortly, maybe they will contract that problem. And that is my main concern because obesity has right. an issue attached to it. But let me tell you those other diseases and those three that I've just mentioned are only a few of the many diseases which stem from obesity, that is a far worse problem. We will have diabetes, diabetes type two, uh, people now starting to overtake obesity in 10 years. We will have cancers increasing at an unbelievable rate. We've got to do something now. Kat, and I mean, quickly, you know, can to you, stop that. I'll let you respond to what Tam's just been saying there. Uh, I'm, I am a plus size model. And I am extremely happy in the body that I inhabit. I'm also a fitness instructor. So I don't appreciate being told that I need to um, change my mindset. I love who I am and I love empowering people to feel body acceptance regardless of what they look like. And I believe that mental health is far more important than focusing on solely throwing diets down their throat in an attempt to make them lose weight. You need to focus on getting this in a better headspace so that they can feel confident enough to take part in exercise and eating healthy and all of those things. And it's a package and it's a long-term deal, guys. It's not an overnight thing. So, you know, nutrition, all those things are really important, but it's not just about shocking people and taking them out of, of mainstream media or ridiculing them either. Um, we are people with opinions and we deserve respect and love just as much as everybody else so what would you say I to Tom then saying i do respect your opinion and i, I do very type 2 diabetes i have a very open and frank discussion with my gp on a regular basis i know i'm not unhealthy i know that i am not um i my both my parents have had diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis so i make a conscious effort to make sure i am not in line for those things um i pride myself on looking after my body um but those things are not mutually exclusive. It's not a given that everybody who is overweight is going to contract those illnesses. So why fear people, make fear be the, the factor to try and change people's outlook? Well, folks, we're going to have to end it there. We've run out of time, sadly. But that's Tam Fry from the National Obesity Forum, Kat Henry and nutritionist Kim Pearson. Thank you very much for your time and contribution on Real Britain today. Folks, plenty more to come this afternoon. Later, we'll be crossing over to Scotland to reflect on the success for the Scottish National Party. But next, we'll be discussing the huge profits that energy giants have made in 2022. Hardly seems fair to me while some people are struggling to pay for their heating. But is there another story? Let's move back now to the local elections, which took place across the UK this week, the Conservatives lost almost 500 council seats on Thursday, with Labour and the Liberal Democrats 
Megan Gaines. The election results come at a time of ongoing controversy, of course, over the so-called party gate and sharp rises in the cost of living. I'm joined now to discuss this by the Conservative MP for Stockton South, Matt Vickers. Matt, thank you very much for your company. You Conservative MPs must be wondering what on earth you've done nominating this man to be your leader, right? He's no longer the winner that you all thought, is he? No, 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 no. I think we've got to look in context at what's gone on. Uh, I think we're 12 years into a Conservative government. These are midterm elections. The press has spent the last three months talking about whether there was or wasn't a party and a birthday cake in Downing Street. Um, I think when you put all that in context, it wasn't a bad night at all, really. Um, it, it wasn't great, but you know what? In context, uh, in fact, look back to Ed Miliband's time when he was in office in this same situation. He took 800 seats and we know how successful he was when it came to a general election. Yes, yeah, a tough night, but you know what? Universally across the country, it's a mixed message. 13% of the population live in London. The media seems slightly obsessed with what went on in London, but when you look across the piece, you look at my part of the world, uh, in Hartlepool we gained seats, in Sunderland, uh, Labour made losses. Um, it's a very different pitch from different parts of the world. Um, they gained Mayfair and lost Hull. Uh, I don't think that's a road to victory at the next general election. But your fellow Tory MP, Aaron Bell, Matt, has called up for a discussion on Boris Johnson's future. I mean... I wonder what it is that he's wanting to discuss, right? Could it be that he's asking the question, is this man still the right man for the job? Maybe Aaron Bell wants to talk about how we did fantastically well in Newcastle and Delight and took control of his local council. Congratulations oh, well, there we are. to Aaron. And I'm sure he is delighted with that result and he's delighted with the impact that the government had in helping him get that. Do you think the Conservative Party is at risk of becoming complacent, though? Do you think there's been an acceptance of... The coalition being the, the so-called blue wall with the so-called red wall, Matt, do you actually think that the, the focus on the red wall has actually mean, meant that the blue wall, in which the Lib Dems have taken a fair few seats, are feeling neglected? Is that what's happened? I don't think that's the case at all. And I think when it comes down to council elections, we've got hard-working councillors who lost their job uh, last night, well, the night before last. I think that's a really sad situation. I, but I don't think there's any complacency anywhere. I think we're, we're out there fighting to win seats, fighting to deliver good local authorities. Actually, the big losers, the big people who lost out most as a result of the local elections, are the people in Westminster who've enjoyed the lowest council tax in the country, or the people in Wandsworth who enjoyed the second lowest council tax in the country. Because I'm fairly confident that looking at Labour controlling those councils, it'll be a very different story to be told. Uh, in a few years' time, and those people will probably come back begging to have their con Conservative Council reinstalled. Yeah, I mean, Matt, I tell you what, when I told my mother the council tax rates that I used to pay when I lived in Wandsworth, compared to that which we pay in Durham, she was quite shocked and quite visibly angry. But, Matt, putting that to one side, Labour's results, right, all right, they did OK, do you feel that they're progressing at such a rate, Sir Keir Starmer is progressing at such a rate, that he's a potential threat to MPs like you? I think, you know what, when we look at our part of the world, Darren, our part of the world up north, everything is about people who've took the chance on us this time, people who'd always yeah. voted Labour because their mum did and their granny did and whoever else did. 
This time, we've got the opportunity to prove that we can deliver. And actually, when you look at my part of the world and you look at the improvements to the local railway station, the improvements in the money being spent on our town centre, the new skills hub that's going in Thornaby to help youngsters get great skills and great jobs, it's about that delivery now. And in a few years' time, people can make their decision, uh, an informed decision on how we've delivered, what we've delivered. Um, we've had a rough ride through the last few years. We had a pandemic that nobody predicted. We've now got a global cost of living crisis that nobody would ever want to see our residents put through. It's about how we deal with that, how we get on, how we ensure that there are great jobs for people out there and we ensure that the economy's on the up. But Matt, shouldn't you be saying to your mate Rishi Sunak, shouldn't you say, come on, mate, time to put your hand in your pocket. We all need a little bit of help here. Because actually that could be where people argue there's complacency on the side of the Conservative Party in just how difficult things are for people at this current time. One of the reasons that people vote for the Conservative Party is because of the sound economic management and the management of our economy uh, that they know comes with the Conservative government. And actually, during the pandemic, there was money there to support people. To, we, we paid the wages of 13 and a half million people. And the only reason we could do that is because in the good time, you know, we, we, we managed the economy properly, made sure that cash was there. And at the moment, because we've spent so much, so much money during that pandemic supporting people, keeping our economy in good nick, we actually have an interest bill this year of £83 billion fortunes. Uh, so we've got to make sure that we balance things out because money doesn't grow on trees. What we spend has got to be taken from somebody. Uh, but actually, we come out of the economy, we've got all the decisions right. It, sorry, we came out of the pandemic in a good way, the fastest growing economy in the G7. More people uh, on payroll in work than there were at the beginning of the pandemic. So the economic disaster that was predicted for the end, end of the pandemic didn't happen. And now we've got to steer our way through this crisis and let's see where we get to. Right. I mean, the Sakia Starmer, of course, thanks to your MP, well, partly thanks to your MP, your colleague, neighbour, not too far away, Richard Holden in uh, northwest Durham. He wrote a letter to the Durham police who have reopened or at least opened an investigation into Sakia Starmer's conduct during. A lockdown. Now, do you actually think that this is going to amount to anything? And if it does, do you think it's a resigning matter for Sakia Starmer? I think, do you know what the bizarre thing is about it? This is a man who has spent the last two or three months talking about nothing but Partygate, talking about how other people should resign if they get a fixed penalty notice. Actually, I think it, in all that time, he knew what he'd done. He knew he'd been to some curry, well, some drink fueled curry event with apparently as many as 30 other people who travelled there. They weren't in an office together working there for several weeks. They travelled from all over the country. Angela Reyna travelled from wherever she travelled from. Kira travelled from wherever he travelled from. 30 people drinking, scoffing, uh, and then he has the gall to go out there and point the finger at other people. So I think he's got questions to answer on that. And I think it's right that the police do reopen the investigation because the law is the law, the rules are the rules, and they should be applied equally, whether it's in Durham or Downing Street. To be quite honest, Matt, it, it surprises me that Sakia Starmer could find 30 people to have a drink and a curry with, to be honest with you. But there we are. Do you actually think, though, Sakia Starmer and the, the rank hypocrisy that I mentioned at the very start of this programme, do you think there's an element here where the public might just say, you know what, you're all as bad as each other? I think there is, you know what, people are rightfully peed off about rules being made by someone and broken by the self-same people. And I think that's fair game. But I think, you know, as we've seen in the local elections, the big national picture costs people lots of seats, potentially. 
Um, I think people have to have a look at what's being offered in their own part of the world by their own councillors and their own MP and what they're delivering locally and make informed decisions in that manner. Matt Vickers MP, the Conservative for Stockton South, thank you very much for your time today. Today is VE Day, just days after many of us have voted in elections and spent the last few days watching commentators and politicians clash over what those election results mean, we ought to remember and be thankful that we're actually able to do that. That prosperous, vibrant democracy that we all enjoy is only possible thanks to the heroism of our greatest generation. This generation defeated the tyranny unleashed across Europe by Adolf Hitler, the greatest generation that I hope we never forget. The selfless sacrifice offered so that generations of us since then could take our freedom for granted. You might well be enjoying a Sunday in the house in front of the telly. You could be enjoying the hope and promise of spring offered in May. Or enjoying a spirited little news channel trying to give British communities a voice and a platform that speaks to them. Whatever it is that you're up to, remember that 77 years on, those who died rather than give way to violence and tyranny and be thankful. It's a time to feel pride in how our nation still offers support and sustenance to the Ukrainian people during their fight against tyranny and oppression. We may well be a small nation, but I reckon we can still pack quite a punch in the name of freedom and liberty. Look at all those cannons being launched with God save the Queen uttered by Ukrainian soldiers. In the way in which only our nation's one constant can do, Her Majesty the Queen's long life has chronicled much of our national story. These previously unseen images offer us a rare and candid glimpse of the carefree and happy nature of our monarch in the years after the war. For our radio listeners, we're just showing you some images there taken from hundreds of private homemade recordings released to the BBC for a new documentary marking the Platinum Jubilee. I was especially touched by an image of a young Princess Elizabeth, 20-year-old, one year after the war, start staring happily at her engagement ring. And it reminds you of the promise of a wedding that, as we know, would bind together two people, Princess Elizabeth and Prince, the later Prince Philip, two people that would serve a nation and build a lifetime of happy memories together. The late and great Prince Philip had designed the ring himself using jewels taken from his mother's tiara, really touching stuff. The late and great Prince Philip actually was the source of the Queen's happiness. And I think the Queen's happiness, our happiness, our freedom and our future were secured because of the brave British boys and girls and Commonwealth nations, of course, that sacrificed so much. So we today, here and now, could afford to take things for granted. So I say, folks, let's remember them today. Let's never ever forget what made us great then still makes us great today. And in an age in which everything about Britain, whether that be our culture, our history, our values, our art, our statues, our way of life, I could go on and on, all of that is under attack, the very bedrock of what we hold dear. Let's remember what convinced those lads and lasses that it was all worth fighting to protect. 
Now, folks, passport applications are currently suffering huge delays as a result of backlog issues at the passport office. A backlog of paperwork has meant that Britons have been left waiting for more than 10 weeks for renewals. So let's pop to our virtual classroom and find out why and what can be done about it. Joining me for a discussion on this is Lisa Minow, travel editor at The Sun. Hiya, Lisa. Lisa, what's going on here? Do you think many people are going to be left thinking, oh, my word, I can't get away this summer? Well, we've already seen it. We've seen people unable to go away, um, you know, in their hundreds, perhaps thousands over the last couple of weeks, uh, where passports have just simply not come back in time for trips that were perhaps very long planned, perhaps trips that actually people had already, you know, delayed several times because of the pandemic. So we've already seen this as a big issue. Um, in terms of some readers themselves, I've had families unable to go on long promised trips. Um, unfortunately, someone who's actually lost their passport and then had to try to get a new one, we're never going to get it in time. And that's going to put their wedding in Barbados at risk. So wow. it really is a huge issue at the moment. Yeah. And if people haven't renewed their passport and are hoping to get away this summer, what would your advice be? Would it, I assume, get it in now? Yeah, I mean, if you've got a holiday booked, yes, get it in as soon as possible. Um, we're talking about 10 weeks minimum, they're saying at the moment for passports. So if you're looking at going away um, in those first couple of weeks of the school summer holidays, that's now. It is 10 mm. weeks from now um, to the start of the summer holidays. So definitely get them in as soon as possible. Um, what people are really struggling with is that when they do need a passport in a really urgent situation, right now they can't even get an appointment for um, one of these sort of on-the-day passports or even the week-long service. Um, they cost more, in fact, almost double uh, the price of a normal passport renewal. But people can't even get appointments for that at the moment. So there wow. really does seem to be a huge labour shortage at the moment. And is this post-pandemic? What's responsible for these massive backlogs? I mean, it very definitely is post-pandemic. What's baffling is why they, you know, they knew this was going to happen. They knew that 4.5 million people had yet to renew their passports after two years where people weren't travelling. Um, so they could have anticipated that once they dropped all these travel restrictions, which they did, um, that people were then instantly going to want to go away, send their passports off. And this is the situation we've come to. Now, I mean, I can understand that during the lockdowns, it would have been very difficult for the passport office to operate from home. You know, we're talking about people's sensitive information information here. Um, you can't just run that off of a home computer. Um, I do understand this has to be done under, you know, really secure servers. Um, but there should have been an anticipation of the fact that once those travel oh, exactly. restrictions were lifted, there would be a huge rush. Yeah. I mean, Lisa, where do you stand then on the Prime Minister saying, come on, folks, if you don't get your act together, threatening them basically with privatisation? Yeah, I mean, I'm not entirely sure how that's going to help in the in the in the short term. Um, I mean, really, generally, before the pandemic, there wasn't really an issue with passports. Um, there was always going to be perhaps a perfect storm because once we've had um, the Brexit, um, that has has actually had an impact on some people's passports. Where at the moment your expiry is ten years from the date of the start of that passport. Um, many of our passports perhaps had a July start date and a September end date because they'd added on the months from your previous passport. From now on, that doesn't count. It is from the date of the uh, sort of passport issue that your passport is then 10 years, it has to be. Then on top of that, you have to have three months to go into Europe, not six months. Some yeah. airlines have been incorrectly telling people it was six months. It is three months. Um, and then that's going to be having more of an impact on people having to renew their passports. Um, so you could see this was going to be the perfect storm. But well, exactly. I think my only... 
my only advice would be if you have got your holiday booked, then obviously you've got no choice. You've got to get it and your passport needs renewing. You've got to get it done as soon as possible. Um, if you haven't yet booked a holiday, renew your passport, get that sorted, then start thinking about yeah. actually booking the trip because you could lose the trip if you can't get away. Definitely. There'll be a lot of very upset people, Lisa, I dare say. Yeah. Lisa Minnell, travel editor at The Sun, thank you very much for your time thank today. You. Chelsea Football Club's new owners are all but confirmed. Exciting times ahead. The club have agreed terms on its £4.2 billion sale to a consortium led by Todd Bowley. I'm joined now by Kieran Maguire, finance lecturer at the University of Liverpool, to discuss this. Kieran, you are the man I want to talk to about this. If you take it back, though, why have Chelsea been put up for sale in the first place? Why would you ever want to get rid of a club like Chelsea? Well, Chelsea were owned by uh, Roman oligarch, uh, sorry, Roman Abramovich, the Russian oligarch. And uh, he ran the club for 19 years. Uh, the club lost over £900,000 a week during that period. But he was he was not bothered about that. He was he was willing to run Chelsea as a sort of as an executive toy, as a trophy asset, and generate trophies. So so he was tended to be popular with Chelsea fans himself. Uh, he announced in early March, uh, following the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, that the club was up for sale, and he said at the time that the net proceeds. Uh, were to go to the victims of the Ukraine conflict, as, as described in a press release. Um, some cynics say that that was uh, to try to prevent the UK government imposing sanctions on him, but uh, the government uh, took things into consideration and, and did impose sanctions on all of Roman Abramovich's assets, but gave a special licence to Chelsea Football Club to allow it to continue to trade right. until the 31st of May. So, Kieran, was this inevitable then? Do you think he would have had to give up the club even if he hadn't said in this press statement, this extraordinary press statement, you know, I'll sell the club and I'll give the profits, the proceeds over to the Ukrainian re relief effort? Well, he's, he certainly would have... Uh... Had, had to have no involvement in terms of the running of Chelsea. And that has been the case since his assets were frozen. Um, I, I think he was aware that he was under pressure. All of his other assets, his property assets in the UK, have been frozen. They've also been frozen in Jersey, uh, where one of his controlling companies called Cambly International operates. Nice. Um, and that's lent Chelsea Football Club £1.5 billion. Right, OK, wow. I mean, these figures are just extraordinary, aren't they? The, the amount of money that's swilling around the Premier League now is just incredible. But this £4.25 billion sale of the club to this consortium led by Todd Bowley, tell me about what do we know about Todd? Um, well, Todd Bowley owns uh, a number of US sports franchises uh, based in the US, so, so he's... he's uh, He's familiar with the sports industry, but the American version of sport, I think, is very different to, to what we're familiar here uh, in England in the sense that uh, it, it is a franchise. There's no relegation. Um, there's, there's very tight control over costs. So therefore, it's a profitable business, whereas what we see in the Premier League, whilst it's incredibly popular, uh, in order to be successful, you have to pay money for talent, and, and talent, uh, you know, talent is expensive. So quite a few clubs in in the Premier League uh, do lose money, and, and Chelsea have lost more money under Roman Abramovich than any other club in Premier League history. 
but done phenomenally well. I mean, Kieran, how popular is the Premier League in America? What would an American want to buy Chelsea Football Club for? Is this status? Um, I don't think so. It, it, it appears that uh, Todd Bowley's consortium is backed by a private equity company and private equity companies that they're there to to look after the interests of of individual investors. So their focus is on a financial rather than a sporting return. Having said that, uh, in, in order to to generate money in the Premier League, you need to be in the ch- in the Champions League itself. That can be worth up to an extra £150 million a year. So therefore, we, we would expect them to make money. I, I think the big issue as far as uh, the American owners are concerned is that they do feel that, that English football is undervalued compared to how much it would cost to buy uh, an American NBA or NFL team. Right. So how does this compare the 4.25 billion figure? How does this compare with international and indeed national statistics on on the amount of money paid for a one individual club? Is this is this breaking any records or not far off doing so? Where are we at there? Oh, this is by far the, the highest figure ever paid for a football club. If we go back to 2005, Manchester United was sold for around about £770 million. Uh, you know, the, the Chelsea officer, the Chelsea officer offer, whilst it's being quoted as four point two five billion, it's actually two point five billion for the club. And then Tug Bowley has said, "Well, we intend to upgrade uh, Stamford Bridge. We imprint, we intend to invest in the squad, and that's where the other one point seven five comes from." But I think the highest offer that we're currently seeing is around about eight hundred and eighty million for one of the Italian clubs. Um, so, so Chelsea's is probably three times the value of, wow. of any deal in, in football history. Yeah, and Kieran, plenty of money then going into the club. Do you think Chelsea's status as one of the top performing clubs in English history, certainly at this current time, that's going to go, you know, they'll be fine from here on out, won't they? Chelsea fans can get pretty excited about their future. Well, I mean, Chelsea's uh, history under Roma Abramovich is, is unprecedented as far as the club is concerned. Remember, all of this money is going to the, the shareholders in Chelsea, who who presently, of course, are Roman Abramovich himself. Um, and, and then that money will be ring-fenced. The government will ensure that it goes into a secure account. And, and I presume the government will then appoint trustees to a charity to distribute the, the, the money in terms of relief, in terms of what's happened in Ukraine. So none of this money was actually physically going to go into the coffers of, of Chelsea in terms of a transfer budget. But what it does do is it potentially secures the future of the club beyond the 31st of May. And Kieran, where do we stand on foreign buyers of, of football clubs to begin with? I mean, I'm a Newcastle United fan, so I'm not going to point any fingers anytime soon. But where do we stand on, on this, the controversial topic of foreign actors buying football clubs? This is something that's under intense scrutiny as far as the Premier League's concerned, isn't it? Well, the, the Premier League has a, has something what's referred to as the owners and directors test. And the way that that operates is it's, it looks at two things. First of all, do you have any unspent criminal convictions? And there's no evidence of that. And secondly, 
can you show evidence that you have the money to, to run the club operationally for at least two years? Um, the, the, uh, the geographical origins of the club are, are not taken into consideration. And if we take a look at all of the trophies run in, in recent times, it's Manchester United, sorry, it's Manchester City mm-hmm. uh, based in UAE. Uh, it's Chelsea, Russia. Uh, Leicester won the Premier League. They're owned by Thai operators. We've got uh, we've got Arsenal, who are based in in uh, in the US. So so it's a long time since an English owned football club uh, actually last won a trophy. We probably have to go back to Wigan Athletic winning the FA Cup, um, wow. and, and that was about eight or nine years ago. Kieran Maguire, thank you very much for shining a light there and informing us all on this extraordinary sale. That was Kieran Maguire, finance lecturer at the University of Liverpool. Thanks for listening to Real Britain, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed it, leave us a comment. I'll see you next time for more Real Britain.